0: Blake said both of us were speaking. My dad was in the hallway and said, now bye. And he turned around the other direction. Don't
1: do this to me. (laughs) It was fun seeing your expression, though. That was cool. (laughs) So good morning. Uh, So today, uh, Janelle and I are going to be sharing this teaching uh, together. And there's a couple reasons for that. For one thing, it's kind of nice to have some of these conversational types of things over the word just to kind of get different perspectives on it. The other reason is is that it's potentially going to be offensive to some people, and so we're going to both run opposite directions when this is over, and you're going to have to choose who it is you're going to chase and get <laughs> mad at. Uh, and,
0: and I will say, if you are planning to chase somebody, I'm pretty sure he's a good bit slower than me. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is, the, this is the one you want to go after. Um, so today we're going to be talking about money, which I know a church talking about money can kind of feel like a lion asking you to look at a toothache. Um, but we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're at a part in the story where it's the parable of the rich fool and what he does with the extra resources that he's been given. And growing up at Eastgate... We didn't really talk about money that often, and when we did, it kind of was associated with, like, a lot of hemming and hawing and a, like, string of apologies in between, <laughs> and I assume that was because of something you experienced before Eastgate?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my formative years as a believer, it was during the 80s, and during the 80s and into the 90s, the, the whole... Uh, Name it and claim it corruption of the gospel was was really prevalent and, and really, for a lot of people, the main view that they had of what Christianity was about was derived from what they saw televangelists doing, who were you know making their uh, constant abounding pleas for money and, and it did a lot of damage that I saw within people 's minds and, and perceptions about what Christianity was but it also did a lot of damage in that there was a lot of uh, bad doctrine that got associated with that, where people were thinking, well, you know, if I give $10, then God's obligated to give me back a $100. And it was this, you know, kind of sanctified financial scheme. Uh, to me, it was more like greed disguised uh, with a thin religious veneer. So my thing was, look, I want to differentiate us from that, so we're just not going to talk about money at all. We'll just never talk about money, and that way it'll be clear we're not that group of people.
0: So what changed from that, or do you still feel that way?
1: Well, I feel that way to some degree in that I still oppose the the things that I just described there. But I got cut to the quick at one point. I really felt like God was trying to uh, alert me. Somebody was saying one time. I, I actually they weren't saying it to me. I heard. I overheard a conversation where somebody was saying, "Yeah, I like coming to Eastgate because they never mess with my money," and and that hit me kind of hard because I, I realized that, you know, that's not that's not the right attitude either. Money. Is the God of our nation. Just prove me wrong on that. Any, any, look at the financial ties or the, the financial incentives behind anything that's bad that's going on, and you'll see that it's there. The, uh, and so it occurred to me that if someone took my silence about money as a validation for their improper allegiance to money, then that means I'm doing this wrong. And we've got to uh, address that. So that had to change.
0: Yeah, and I see where you're coming from with that, because obviously we don't want to be manipulative in that, but it also is something we have to kind of ask ourselves how we feel about it. Yeah, I know for me, I kind of always felt like maybe I wasn't giving enough or doing enough, and that God was probably disappointed. Like He knew there's maybe an extra $50 I could have given along the way, and I chose not to. <laughs> so I kind of decided like, oh, I'll just leave that out of God, <laughs> leave that out of, that part out of out of my life with as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And and I know there's also this thought of. I've heard someone say like Christianity has a ten percent membership fee of your income, you know, and it's like pay your membership fee and then do the do what you want with the rest.
1: Yeah, and I actually I even had somebody say it to me that way. Not somebody from this church, but one person who was talking to me who kind of was buying into that idea. And there's a whole issue about the tithe in and of itself that we could discuss at a different time. But he was saying to me, he said, yeah, you know, God just asks for 10% and then the other 90% is mine to do with whatever I want. I was like, well, what does that mean? Because there's a lot of nefarious stuff you could do with money if you're just saying it's all yours then at that point. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well,
0: and I feel like that is a real temptation. Like I said, for me, I felt that way of just kind of wanting to distinguish or kind of separate money from my Christianity because I didn't know how it could work in harmony together. I felt like just again, just based on my personality, anybody that knows me would be like, Oh, you felt guilty. Big surprise. But <laughs> I did. <She's> a woodrum. <laughs> I learned it from watching you. Um, so
1: <laughs> she's a green actually. Sorry. <laughs> um,
0: but it was something where like my, our family loves Disney world. My, my, they always want to go to Disney world. And when we'd go, there's been times that we went that the whole time I'm like, I'm so sorry, God, I'm spending this money on Disney world and not giving it to the poor. Like God knows how much I spent. And he's probably really disappointed in me. <laughs> um, Um, And so it was hard to, like, really enjoy myself even with the good things and fun things that we wanted to do as a family. And so for anybody else that has maybe struggled with that feeling of feeling kind of disconnected or not knowing exactly how it works together with Christianity in terms Mm -hmm. of money or feeling maybe manipulated by the church to give more than you felt comfortable with, hopefully these verses that we read today can bring some freedom for for everybody listening.
1: I think so. So if you've got a Bible with you, or a Bible app, or somewhere to follow along, if you want to head over to Luke chapter 12. Last week we looked at, uh, uh, as we began chapter 12, we looked at Jesus' fairly stern warnings uh, about uh, the sin of hypocrisy. But he, he finished it off by reminding us then that the, the reason we don't need to play act is because God loves us. God loves us so much, we are actually valued by God, That's the basis for a, a healthy self-understanding, that we are valued by God. So now, today, Jesus is kind of going to turn that around. God values us, but what do we value as human beings, as those who belong to God? What do we value? What commands our allegiance? What are our motives and our priorities when it comes to the resources that we have in life? Because as followers of Christ, we've got to come to grips with uh, this this uh, call this immense call that he's, he's placed on our lives. And this morning it's going to get kind of personal. It might be uncomfortable, but the biblical narrative has a lot to say about money from Genesis to revelation. And I I believe that that's because we've got this power that's behind money. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the warnings are there regularly throughout Scripture, and the pattern is always a warning against greed and always a, an encouragement towards generosity because there's something about money that has the capacity to, to, to distort us. The, a, a, a desire for or, or that, that allure that money has can sometimes make it very difficult for us to actually hear the radical and disruptive call of the gospel. And we've got to be cautious about that. There's something about money, and this is just true for humanity, that has a tendency to want to grab us and not let go of us. So there are idols sneaking around in our wallets. And Jesus wants us to be aware of it and cautious about that. So if you're there in Luke chapter 12, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 13. You want to read this for us?
0: Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made you who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you owe. Hmm. When I first read these verses, the first thing that jumped out to me was Jesus' response. I feel like he's always trying to tell us he's God and Lord, and this person's asking for his advice, and the first thing he says is like, who made me judge over you. I don't know if it's like the youngest sibling in me, but like, excuse me, if a s brother or sister's not being fair, you need to call in a grown up for help. But what am I missing here?
1: Yeah, it is an odd, it's an odd passage right off the bat. Uh, one of the things that had such a huge impact on me when I taught through the Old Testament was this, uh, this serious emphasis that is placed in the old Testament on justice and equity and fairness. And I mean, you know, the unjust scale, that's a big deal within, within, you know, God's introduction of himself to the human race in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And so it, you know, uh, it does seem odd that Jesus is so dismissive of this guy's request, who's asking God's intervention in, in this. So there's a couple ideas I have on that. For one thing, Luke has made a pronounced distinction of the people groups that are around Jesus in his gospel. So we've got the religious leaders, and we know that they're opposed to Jesus. That's been very clear through the whole story. We've got his disciples, and and Luke makes a point at, at mentioning when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And his disciples are the ones that are taking up his discipline. They're following his way of life. They're following and putting in with the intent of putting into practice the things that he's saying and modeling for them. And then Luke talks about the crowds. And the crowds are distinct from either of these other two people groups. And they're they're people that are attached to Jesus from a distance. They're observing him. Maybe they're still trying to make up their minds about him, what they believe about him. But they are clearly, in Luke's description of it, not people who are putting into practice what Jesus says at this point. So where does Luke locate the person who calls out to him? Well,
0: in verse 13, it says, from the crowd. So would that be part of why Jesus is frustrated is in verses one through 12, Jesus just explained, God is in control. You are valued. He sees you. He's going to care for your needs. And then someone shouts from the crowd to interrupt him saying, yeah, but
1: right. That sounds good. But my
0: brother's not sharing.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the, that's the sense that we have is that this person isn't really necessarily interested in following the Jesus path of life He just wants to use Jesus to settle a dispute in his favor.
0: So that could even be maybe part of why Jesus is, it seems like frustrated um, because he's thinking, you don't seem to care about my take on any other part of your life. But all of a sudden, when it comes to money now... You say I'm in charge.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, and we're doing a lot of inferring here. So, I mean, there's no way to know for sure. The other idea is that Jesus may just be aware of something going on in this guy, this person's heart that, you know, that maybe settling this dispute and getting his inheritance isn't the most important thing that's happening for him right now. And I think that's what really kind of intrigues me, because on the surface, this person is asking for justice, something that God does care a lot about. And it seems as though he's asking for divine intervention to make things fair. But there clearly is something at work in some unseen way or unspoken way in this passage that alters that, that has uh, changed that up and has changed what could be, you know, a good pursuit into something else. And to me, it's a reminder, something that we've got to be cautious of. And that's that greed can sometimes be disguised as a good cause. That we can sometimes excuse greed because it 's under the veneer of what we think is a good or just or fair cause, so, so just for example, and, and you know i 'll qualify this, but someone years and years ago came up to me and, and told me that that you know uh, he had a dispute with a fellow believer, and this fellow believer worked for a Christian organization, and he was treated unfairly, and he wanted to take him to court and sue him and He said, "What do you think about that? Should I be doing that And I said, "Well." You know, if we go if we go by what First Corinthians six says, Paul tells us that when there's a dispute between believers, that we need to you know we should seek God's wisdom to sort these things out. Not drag this out in front of the world for the world's judges to figure out, but sort it out with God's wisdom. And if you can't sort it out, Paul actually said the nobler course is to suffer the wrong. Go ahead and suffer the wrong and and move forward from that. And when I explained that to this person who was laying it out, and I wasn't really telling him what to do. There was a, there was an agitation there, and the response was, yes, but that's leaving a lot of money on the table, and they're the ones who were unfair to me. And, and again, I can't judge another person or anything like that, but th- there's a situation where you could say that the claim was a pursuit for something that's a righteous, noble cause, but really, it's the money on the table that, that, that's wanted. And, you know, and I get, listen, to try to be in defense of him, I get where he's coming from on that. I understand. I mean, this is I mean, this is the mindset of our culture. This is what everyone would expect to happen. And I'm not trying to demean him for wanting this, but we need to understand that our culture is not informing us properly when it comes to how it is we establish our values and the things that we're pursuing in this life. I think the the lesson may be that we first first and foremost need to guard against greed more than we obsess about fairness.
0: Well, and that's where we have to ask ourselves what our motivations are. Yeah. Because God is looking at the heart, and he knows why we are doing or not doing certain things. And instead of just following blindly along with what the culture might say is right, we have to learn to make that distinction. Because I think the culture would say, taking the money that's left on the table isn't greed. That's smart.
1: Yeah, of course. That, that, I mean, that's the whole thing. Uh, our, our hearts, you know, regardless of what the culture may dictate or what may seem, you know, like, like common sense, our hearts are always the most important thing to God. Imagine anything that's going on in life or whatever you may have your hands on and weigh that out against the human heart and, and our position before God. God always cares about the heart. And, and and our lives, Jesus says it as plain, plainly as he can. Our lives are measured by something far beyond just what possessions we have or what monies we may have amassed in, in a bank account. Here, our our hearts need to be preserved, and that is God's highest priority, uh, which then means it needs to be our highest priority, right? <laughs> okay. Well, let's just keep reading. You want to read this verse sixteen? Then he told
0: them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. So we're going to stop and look at this for a second. Jesus... Answers this person's question and this person's request by telling a story, which I can't help but wonder if the disciples, having been around Jesus, they're like, you know, he only tells stories when he's mad, right? Um, but that's fine.
1: Here he goes again.
0: <laughs> you asked the question, uh, but either way, Jesus is telling a story, telling a parable about a rich man. This isn't somebody that. Started off poor, started off begging for money. This is about a rich man who gets even richer from all of these extra resources and extra crops that he has.
1: And and, and that goes to the heart of what it is that Jesus is addressing here. It, it goes to the heart of the word that he uses for greed. Play in the Greek. It's more than just you know uh, a simple attitude description. It's it has to do with a mindset that sees nothing as a barrier from amassing to excess. That's the concept behind that. So
0: It makes me think of that famous quote from Rockefeller who was super, super rich at his time and somebody asked, how much money is going to be enough for you? And he said, just a little bit more than I already have.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that's the mindset that's being addressed here by Jesus when he's talking about this. And I think it's really interesting that in setting this story up, Jesus frames the rich man as thinking... Uh, about this, about his excess. What should I do? He asks that question. What do I do with this?
0: And that brings me back to what I was saying earlier, because I have felt that before of what am I supposed to do? What does God want me to be doing with this money? How much does he want?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that what we're being encouraged towards here, what Jesus is trying to encourage in us is that we're going to overcome greed by checking our motives and our pursuit by Doing a continual check, what's happening here in my heart? What am I pursuing and why am I pursuing it?
0: Yeah, and I think about what this rich man could have done with the extra resources he had. I mean, if he was rich, he probably wasn't the only person working on that farm. I mean, he had employees that maybe he could have doubled their salaries or given it to them or given it to the poor in his community or different, maybe charities that were yeah. going on at that time. Yeah.
1: Ways to bless the larger community. Yeah.
0: Use that money to, to maybe bless the people close to him or even the the larger community around it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a few months ago I was listening to a podcast that referenced this book called God and money. Um, it was a really, great podcast. The, these two authors of the book were being interviewed in the podcast, and they were two guys that went to grad school at Harvard. And the reason they went to grad school is because they were in jobs that were making a lot of money, and, and by going to grad school, they were going to make even more money. And they were really excited about, one of them was really excited about the ways they could save it, and one of them was really excited about the ways they could spend it. And while they were at Harvard, they were Christians, and they took a an elective at the Divinity School at Harvard about Money and specifically money within the Bible and what that says. And in that class, God met them there and really challenged not only the way that they think about money, the way they spend money, the way they save money, but it challenged the entire way that they live. Mm. So I was excited after hearing this podcast. Like, oh, I got to listen, read this book. Um, So the book touches on their story a bit, but more than that, it goes into what the Bible says about money, what God says about money. They talk about the patterns that are found in the Bible of being generous, encouraging us to be generous. Um, it goes there, but it also offers really practical ways to live a more generous life, which I was like, yes, I need that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's parts for me. Um, but I loved it because it challenges the way we think about money. It really challenged the way I think about money, the way our family saves money, the way that we spend money. And instead of just thinking about those things, it encouraged us to find a way to to be more generous in that. And in that generosity, there's a joy that I found that really is unmatched with anything Mm. else in my Mm. life.
1: And that's so that's cool, because so then what you're saying, then, is that what this book caused you to do, basically what Jesus is illustrating in this story is to to stop and think about this think about these resources. And what you're describing is basically the the, the first thing that the man had, did. He had extra and he stopped and he asked, what should I do? And we all should do that. I mean, this, you know, this is the pattern that I think Jesus is trying to promote in us, all of us being a little more conscious and careful. Uh, and the difference is the difference between ourselves and the farmer in this story is that we can all intentionally seek out God's values as, as to how to answer that question of what I should do. And as I see it, that's what you're describing, describing here.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the, there's so many things that stood out from this book for me, but one of the biggest things was kind of challenging the way that normally when I'd get a paycheck or we'd get income in our bank account, we would stop and think, okay, how much of this does God want? Like what percentage? Like 10? Is that enough? <laughs> um, where now instead of looking at my paycheck and seeing how much does God need? I look at a paycheck and say, God, all of this is yours. A hundred percent of this came from you. It was given to us for a reason. And how much do we need to keep of it?
1: Mm. It's like, not, yeah. So like, how much do I need to live on? Right. And then what do you want done yeah. w- with the rest, the is, rest of yeah. it? And I feel like that would really alter the way that we view uh, the resources that we have. I mean, I feel ideally, I think that would, would have that kind of effect. Well, let's keep reading here. Uh, Verse uh, 18 says, uh, in this story, Jesus is saying, he's got this extra, what should I do with it? Verse 18, he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for many years to come. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You'll die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, and this is Jesus. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God.
0: Yeah. I I can't help but wonder how many times I've done what this person has done in this story where I like pat myself on the back for a plan that I'm convinced is really good. And God's like, (laughs) no, Uh, um, but you know, I think about, I think about this and on the surface before God calls him a fool, I wouldn't have thought that was a bad idea. I'm like, no, yeah, you're being responsible. You built a barn. You didn't just leave the crops outside. Like, good for you. And I think part yeah. of our culture, that would be seen as that a good It
1: is definitely a plan that our culture would approve of, that, that our society, that is promoted in our world as pretty much a, a common sense, the, the common sensibilities of our culture as the right course of action to, to take when there is this kind of excess.
0: Yeah, and I think about what God's response to his plan was in verse 20. I mean, he starts by calling him a fool. I wonder if this person ever heard from God in his life and the first thing he hears is you fool. Like, Just as oh, he's dying. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> as he's dying, that's what he hears. Um, but I think, you know, being called out by God with our choices can be really humbling and really embarrassing. And it, uh, yeah, and it brings us to a choice that we all have to face as Christians and usually a choice that we have to face over and over, which is do I allow myself to be humbled, sometimes embarrassed? Do I allow myself to be humbled and submit to what God's plans are and what God says is right and perfect? Or do I reject that and just continue doing what I think is best?
1: Just go my way. Yeah. And, and that is the gospel's radical claim on our lives. It, and it's the central point of the parable. And it's, it's probably tied in to Jesus's response to the guy who was asking him to settle this dispute of inheritance. Because it's about what the core issue then is about security. That's what this is all about with this rich guy. Our culture is fully convinced that security is going to be found in in financial stability and success. And Jesus points out that there is a bigger picture here. There's something be beyond all of that. There's something that comes after the day is done. In this, there's something that goes extends beyond this life, and 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 we need to to be prepared. Uh, when it touches that, and I love this quote from the Celtic book of prayers that says, uh, the best preparation for the night is to work diligently while the day lasts.
0: But couldn't you say that the person from this parable kind of did that? Like they worked really hard. They got all these crops
1: and then, yeah, no. So we have to, (laughs) we've got to define security. That's the real issue here. We've got to define what we mean by security. And and that's the real core issue. Jesus is pointing way beyond the bank statement in its limited finiteness. There's an eternal perspective that Jesus is trying to remind us of that we factor into our values and our priorities. If we're trusting God with what comes after, we need to be trusting God with what happens now, right? Right? that's the concept behind this. So I think what he's telling us and what we're learning here is that we're going to overcome greed when our sense of security is found in God and not in whatever temporal resources we're able to amass.
0: Yeah. And, and as we said, this does feel so relevant to where we live and especially this time. And after reading this, though, I mean, we do have to ask ourselves, how do I view savings? Yeah. And are we saying that Jesus thinks having a savings account is foolish or like if you have a savings account we can like judge you for being a bad
1: Christian? <laughs> <laughs> How much is in your bank? So okay, so that's a great point. I mean, that's a really good and valid question. I don't think that Jesus's intent is to try to promote fiscal irresponsibility on our part. There's nothing wrong with having a savings account or, or making some plan. You know, you, we, we can't. We've said this before. We talk about trusting God with our future. We're not trying to take control of everything. But we're not in that saying that we float along through life and do nothing. You know, I made a doctor's appointment. No, I don't do appointments, man. I just float through <laughs> life. We can't do that. We're not saying that. But clearly, Jesus intends for us to transfer our sense of security away from temporal money and two, his eternal love, right? Our sense of security is found in something other than green little pieces of paper. There's this tendency that we have, and especially within our culture, and that's what we have to address, to think that, you know, I can relax once I've gotten enough money saved up. If I got this much and I've got my kids' college all prepaid and and it's fully refundable if they end up working for a church or something like that, you know. So, it's so I mean, we, we have this tendency to think that that's where our... Where our security, our security and the sense of security comes from finances.
0: So in this book that I was referencing earlier, I have it with me. Um, the <laughs> two guys uh, who wrote it uh, interviewed a lot of people asking their perspective, their experiences with generosity or people around them. And I wanted to read this really quick um, excerpt from it because I felt like it. I'll time you. <laughs> okay, good. Um, okay, I'm trying to figure out how to do this. While holding my mic. Okay, so it Want says. Want me to hold it for you? No, I think I got it. Don't touch it. Get away, Dad. (laughs) I got it, Dad. Um, (laughs) It says, uh, a pastor once told us a story about a friend of his from college. Before they graduated, the two friends discussed how much money they wanted to earn in their careers in order to retire comfortably. They settled on an amount of $5 million. The pastor followed the career progression of his college friend who was moving rapidly through the ranks of a very well-known Fortune 500 company. Ten years after graduation, the pastor called his friend and said, Hey, I've been following your career. Do you remember our conversation? You must have hit $5 million by now. How does it feel to be able to retire? The friend replied, You know, we were so naive back then. The number isn't $5 million, it's $20 million. Mm-hmm. Life is more complicated than you realize. The pastor continued to follow his friend's career. Twenty years after graduation, the friend was now a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. The pastor called him again and asked him the same question. The CEO replied, you know, I was so naive back then. I'm above the number, but I can't retire yet. We just don't feel secure. This time, the CEO could not even articulate for what purpose the extra money could be used. Mm -hmm. In truth, the money was a drug used to treat the CEO's insecurity about his self-worth and well-being. Ironically, the cause of the CEO's unbearable insecurity was the drug itself, the pursuit of wealth.
1: Hmm, that's, that's profound. And honestly, as you're reading that, it may even be worse than that. I mean, it, 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 it may be like the serpent's deception in the garden. Take this and you'll be like God. Even though they were already made in the image of God, they were already as like God as they needed to be. The, the temptation was to take on a little bit more and to be like God. And Andrew Pryor wrote, the worst thing about possessions is that they can help us imagine that we are like God in the wrong sense. They let us think we have a hedge against contingency, that we can buy our way out of being, in the end, a creature which is utterly dependent upon God. Possessions are too easily our sign to ourselves that we are really God.
0: And I mean, it makes sense why people will go to money instead of to God, because sure. I think for myself personally, I find it so much more difficult to surrender that sense of control, even if it's a false sense of control. And I know it's a false sense of control. It's difficult to surrender that and trust in God's plan.
1: Yeah. And, and so I think that's what we're learning from this, that it's not just a matter of getting our security located in the wrong place. The problem is, is that we're, are, we're putting our security in something that is ultimately dangerous it's ultimately dangerous. That's what he's trying to communicate. He's emphatically making the point money is dangerous stuff. It's not to be trifled with when it comes to our hearts.
0: That stern warning makes me think of like a parent sternly telling their kids not to run into the road. You know, be careful. That's dangerous out
1: there. Don't play in a busy highway. Yeah, (laughs) where I feel like
0: it doesn't matter what argument my child comes up with or what you know, rationale they have, they're never going to convince me that a busy highway is a safe playground.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. It's a dangerous place. You have to proceed with caution. And here's the thing, the cars that are traveling back and forth on that highway are a neutral force. It's not like they're out to do something necessarily nefarious. They're just simply vehicles that transport us, but we have to be careful and we have to be cautious around it, just like money just the same way money in itself isn't evil it's simply a tool the danger is that it poses a danger to our hearts how we use it how we see it what place it holds in our allegiance and our affections and where our sense of security comes from and if money is the answer to any of those questions then there's something else happening here money has taken on a different shape it's taken on something it's Again, as I said, there's idols sneaking around in our wallets that Jesus wants us to be aware of.
0: So let's zoom back out of this parable. I mean, this started with a man in the crowd asking a question, asking for Jesus to intervene on his behalf. And instead of saying yes or no, Jesus responds by telling a story. And I notice that the Bible verses don't go on to tell us what this man did after hearing the story. It doesn't say if he walked away frustrated or he walked away changed or just continued to follow Jesus. Like, it doesn't tell us. And I can't help but, like, have a certain idea in my mind that I hope he walked away convicted. I hope he walked away finding that security in something else. But we just really don't know.
1: And that's, I I mean, that's the thing about all of these stories from the Gospels, besides the parables that he tells. But the whole stories that we read, oftentimes, they're just left dangling without an ending. And I truly believe that's because we're supposed to provide the ending to these stories. We're supposed to provide the ending to this. What will we do with this? How will this affect our hearts?
0: I know for me, I felt really tired of feeling guilty. And I also felt tired of just honestly feeling confused about how money, my money, (laughs) <laughs> our money, our family's money, could work in harmony with Christianity and work in harmony with God's plan because I don't think feeling guilty—like I knew feeling guilty was not the answer. Right. I knew right. that was not the freedom that right. Jesus had promised us.
1: You feel guilty? <laughs> Job accomplished.
0: <laughs> I didn't. Um, and so I was really excited to find this book and have an opportunity to look for more answers um, as to what our family could be doing. And again, I've, I've talked about this book just really being so impactful in our family's life that. Not only does it have a biblical foundation of referencing scriptures as to why it does it, but it offers this this practical way for our family to start living a different, more generous lifestyle. And I remember when I first started reading this book and it's describing the different things that can be done or how we can can get to a more generous lifestyle. I was really excited, like, awesome, we're gonna we're gonna be different. And I went and sat down on my computer and worked on our budget and was like, we have no money. <laughs> is that do you need that to be generous? Um, and so <laughs> I was like, that's okay. Um, and so I was praying about it. God, I want to be more generous, I want to find ways to be more generous, and just please help provide for us to be generous, which is kind of a funny prayer. Um, but I remember talking to my husband and talking to my daughter about it and trying to be creative and we spent some time thinking about it. And what we came up with was if we had extra money left over from our grocery budget, instead of letting that just be absorbed into the rest of our budget, we decided we would give that money away. Now, this was an interesting thought because we never had money left over in our grocery budget. We always went over. But this was something we decided as a family that we wanted to work on and we wanted to do. And my daughter is eight. She was excited, and she wanted to work on it. That when we went to the store, she was helping me pick, like, buy one, get one, and shop the sales. And we ate a lot of pasta. And so the first time we did <laughs> it, we thing. had no money left over. And we're like, that's okay. We'll try again. <laughs> and so the next week we did it, we had, I think, like $13 left over. And it was so exciting. Like, this was 13 Our whole family worked to get, and we are giving this money away. And we talked about it as a family and decided, okay, we want to give it to St. Jude. My daughter loves that charity. My husband loves that charity. And so my daughter sat next to me at the computer, and we type in her like (laughs) (laughs) 13.00, and we're like high-fiving like, we did it. But it was a joy that I found in that moment that our whole family got to be a part of that's really unlike any other joy I've experienced in life. And it wasn't out of guilt. It wasn't out of shame. It was this excitement of like, this is a really cool way that we get to live. And it's something that I'm so passionate about, wanting to share that with other people. Like, this is offered to all of us. It wasn't just for us. Since that time our budget has stabilized. We've been able to give a lot more and on a consistent basis. But even then, when extra money comes in, we kind of have a group meeting. Hey, where do we want to give this? Does anybody know of anybody with needs or different ways we can be doing that? And instead of now just having a savings goal for our family or spending limits, we have a giving goal for our family and an amount that we are trying to reach in the same way as those other
1: things. So cool. I mean, I'm sorry but I can't help but feel really proud of being the parent of this. But but I love to see you get applause. I rarely get applause. I was so
0: embarrassed to tell that story because I didn't want to be like, look, I've got it figured out. But, but I, I wanted it to be just for anybody else that maybe has felt that way an encouragement.
1: And, and I love that you're passing this on to the generation that you've been called to, to care for and, and instruct. But also beyond that, it goes, it reminds us, this is not about amounts. I mean, we're talking about the heart, you know, there's, we're talking $13, but $13 opened the doorway to something else, a different kind of existence, a different way to understand that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. So. So, listen, you know, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about money, but there's some practical things here that we can learn from this. In guarding against greed and watching over our, house, our, our hearts, we, we present ourselves before God's Word, and that's what we're doing every Sunday morning. So let's learn from this. Let's set out to examine our priorities, what our motives are, for how it is that we handle and deal with the resources that we have. Let's allow God's Word To shape us towards hearts that are generous and caring about others, recognizing that all the resources that we have are God's to begin with. How much do we need, and how much does he want us? What does he want us to do with the rest? And then let's let's humble ourselves enough to to take that honest look inside of our hearts. And this is nothing that has to be done in front of somebody else. This is something that is done in front of the mirror. This is something that we we look at ourselves and we ask God, help help me with this. Because listen, the juggernaut of our culture is moving at breakneck speed in one direction. And God is calling out to us regularly, weekly from his word. They may be saying it's this way, but I'm telling you it's this way. They may be telling you that this is where security is found, but I'm telling you security is found in my love for you is God's word to us. So let's let's ask God to help transfer our trust from those green pieces of little paper that have been everywhere and, and, and put our trust in that eternal love that he has for us maybe we can loosen our grip on money maybe we can loosen our grip on that desire for control <laughs> or you know we can put our finances and our future in his hands and in his hands everything's safe right on? All right. Very cool. Um, Just before we finish with the song, this is the 10-year anniversary today. Uh, No, I said 10-year. It's the three-year anniversary today, the 10th. It's the three-year anniversary of Hurricane Michael. And... And... uh, is that a clap thing? <laughs> I guess because we're three years beyond it. But here's what I am going to say is that I do know that there's families here. I, there's only one present right now that I'm aware of who still isn't back in their house. And, and you know, facing challenge after challenge with that, we've got other families from this church uh, as well that are going through this. What, can we take some time this morning after three years and just pray for these families? Uh, Bob, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can some of you guys kind of... What is it too late too late? <laughs> Can somebody kind of get a gather around Bob there and let's 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 pray and uh, let's just ask God for his help and his intervention and continued grace uh, in this recovery process and we know that there's still plenty of things that are a struggle and a difficulty uh, in this world and in this community, especially but Father, we pray right now, we pray for the hesses. We pray for the Clarks. We pray for the Schneiders. We pray for these families who are still suffering the disruptive effects that this storm has had on this, on this county and this city and this town. And so we just pray, Father, for your grace to be extended. Let your grace flow to them right now. Let your, let the power of your peace surround them and calm their hearts and encourage them along the way. And Father, we just pray that you intervene and get the wheels moving to, to, enable them to return to their homes to 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 be able to to enjoy the things that they have known uh, prior to this storm but father we still we put our security in your hands and so help them father to find that security in you give them the patience and the grace that they need as things are still coming back together give them favor where they need favor uh, and and help where they need help but we just pray for them lord we haven't forgotten them and we know that you have never forgotten them so come and help, and we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Well, uh, thank you, Janelle, for sharing that with me today. And let's, uh, let's, speak this, let's speak this blessing on each other before we bail out of here. If you need prayer for anything, the men's group will be here to pray for you, especially if you need healing. They'll anoint you with oil pray for your healing. Uh, uh, is that it? And then that's it. So, all right, let's speak this blessing on each other. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.